This episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy online payments. To learn more right now, visit braintreepayments.com slash supertrain. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Good. It's a little early. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it is. You know, actually, we're starting early. Good for you. Yeah, three minutes early. Ding dong. Woo! Us! Yay! Did I tell you about the place next door, how they're like renovating for two months? I told you about this, right? Yeah, you did. Oh, my God. So doing some banging? Well, yeah, there's some banging. Also, I mean, I just want to clear this up because there may be some noise. I will, I will do my usual poor attempt to mute. But, uh, yeah, I think this place, it's a shit show. Um, the, the Terrence stuff, I think these guys might be a little bit off the books. The oh. contractors they've got. I see. Yeah. I mean, for example, <laughs> my daughter and I like to walk by and just kind of stick our heads in to see what's going on. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So we noticed that they, they torn up a bunch of the floor and there were uh, lots of like several inches to a foot deep pools of water. Mm-hmm. in the place, which doesn't seem normal as part of a demolition process. No, and you know, it's a very sandy soil where you are. Absolutely. Sh- should be excellent drainage. Yeah, yeah, you'd think so. Uh, and But then uh, we walked by and there was a whole bunch of, uh, you know, the orange, like, heavy-duty extension cord. Uh-huh, There's a uh-huh. bunch of that sitting in that pool of water. Right. Now, listen, I'm, I'm no junior high safety video, right. but I'm just here to say, I don't know if that's the best practice in construction. Was it plugged into anything, or was I, it I just resting? See. They might have just been storing it in the water, which yeah. I, I guess is safer. Yeah, that is. That's actually uh, pretty standard. Yeah, pretty standard. Yeah, I mean, if you if you read the manual, actually, if you buy an extension cord, it mm. says right on it, store in water. Oh, that's store, a good idea. Store in standing water. Store in standing water. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, listen. One thing. <laughs> you know what? Standing water gets the gas face. Yeah. You know what? I, I forgot to get my non-clicky keyboard. All I have right now is my clicky keyboard. Should I go get my should I use my clicky keyboard or go yeah, get my non- No, no, I think that people like to hear the clicky keyboard because they know uh they know that research is being done. They know that they know that work is getting done. You know what? I you know, let's 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 uh let's clear the air about this. Mm-hmm. Because people write. You know Yeah, they do. They write in. They they write in they send us letters. Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, everybody's got a thought, and that that's okay. But you know, if you hear me typing while John's talking, please don't assume that I'm bored. Assume that it's my job to make the show go, and I have to do show things, and sometimes that requires typing. So today, you're really going to hear it. See, this I haven't used this one in a while, but this is what this one sounds like. The thing that the thing that viewers should know is that yeah, it viewers. is you cannot on this show Mm-mm. you cannot let your guard down for a second. Oh, are you kidding me? You know, like you couldn't get bored and start surfing the internet because, woo, you might come back into the conversation and we're all the way out, uh, you know, we're all the way out talking about which dog uh, is which beetle. You know, like what, if, if you had to do a velvet painting of the Beatles as dogs. Oh, I'm, I'm capturing that. Who would be what, right? You're yeah. going to, and you're going to just be like, oh, sorry, I was surfing the web and I uh, missed, I didn't get that or something. I wor- John, do it. I worry, I lose sleep over this because I think a lot of people, you know, God bless you. I'm glad you're enjoying podcasts. Welcome. Mm-hmm. I'm glad, but I worry sometimes that people get so used to listening to these goddamn spoon fed podcasts. Wow. You, no, in a good way. Like, I'm glad. It's nice. It's relaxing. Sure. Yeah. 
Sure, sure, sure. It's the kind of shows where you can go like, hey, we're back. Here's the thing we're talking about, and this is what we're going to talk about more. (laughs) On here, you can't do that. You can't go get a beverage and just hope you're going to catch up. You're missing gold. You're leaving color in the ground. I think a lot of the reason that people listen to this program over and over, four, sometimes five times all the way through the entire Mm -hmm. series, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is that the first time they listened to it uh, in their car. Yeah. And they were like, God, I didn't get all that. And so the second time they listened to it while they were doing the dishes... Still. Mm-hmm. So the third time, they sat in their living room staring. The third, third, third time, they're angry. Yeah, they're angry. They're right. staring at the speaker now. They're not listening to it on headphones. They put it on the, the speaker. They notice the inaccuracies. They're, they're staring at the speaker. Yep. And they realize that wasn't enough. Uh-huh. But you know, the sixth time you listen, you realize it's really your fault as the listener. Well, the sixth time, presumably yeah. you have a transcript in your hand. Yeah. You're listening to the program, eyes closed, mm-hmm. in front of a speaker. John, are you, are you checking your email while you're doing this? Uh, no, I'm afraid you cannot. No, you're gonna no. sit. You're gonna sit like a gentleman, yeah. and you're gonna listen. And you're gonna all those notes you took in your Italian notebook. You're gonna realize how much you got wrong because you missed things. Is your car? Is your is your child sitting in a car seat babbling some fucking kid nonsense? Me, me, me. No, no, no. Leave it. That's right. Are you sitting? Are you waiting for the light to change? Right. No. Mm-mm. There's a lot to get. I was at a conference this past weekend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you went know, to the uh, went to the uh, the Zoso conference. Yeah, the wonderful Zoso conference, uh, run by wonderful Andes, mm-hmm. and it was uh, there were a lot of podcasters there. Oh yeah, it's, it's it's lousy with podcasters. Lousy with podcasters. Also, and were there a lot of makers there, John? Every single person there was a maker mm. or a creative of some kind. Uh, <laughs> but the um, and and, there, and more on that. I'm going to circle back to that. Okay. But a lot of podcasters and also a lot of podcast consumers. Oh, interesting. So in a way, it was sort of a podcast trade fair. Huh. There were a lot of booths. Uh, You would go around and pick up swag at each booth as long as they could get your email address. Oh, yeah, sure. No, no, no. That's not how it happened at all. But a lot of people want to talk to me. First of all, they want to talk to me about you. What? Yeah, because they say, oh, Merlin, man, is it true that? And I'm like, let me stop you right there. Probably. Wow. No, that's awkward. Say, oh, no. Don't, say, don't talk to people about me, John. And they say, Merlin, uh, what does Merlin mean when he... And then I say, let me stop you right there. Oh, God. I have no idea. This is, this is literally my nightmare. No, no, no. It's wonderful. There's so many Merlin fans out there. Oh, my God. And they're, and they're starved for Merlin time. And oh. so that's what I'm there for okay. as a sort of Merlin prize. <sighs> and then... But the interesting thing is talking to other podcasters about their experience podcasting. Oh, you know, you know, sitting around a big table, there's a big roast on the table, the candelabra are burning. The wine is flowing. The wine is flowing. Uh, Someone's playing a lute and we are. uh, Pretty. How dost thou edit thine pike? And then everyone has a different experience because everyone, this is the crazy thing about podcasting that a lot of people don't know. Hmm. Everyone does a different kind of podcast. Everyone does a different kind of podcast. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a, a situation where one person's podcast seems like it should be instructive uh, for another person doing a podcast, but really every podcast is different, Merlin. Oh, my God. That's actually so much like life. It's strangely like life. Where people like to give advice because they went through the mouse maze in this given way and they found cheese and didn't die. So they're pretty sure they should write a book about it. Well, and and who moved my cheese, right? Became a national and international bestseller. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
my feeling about it was a lot of what people wanted to talk about uh, viz podcasting was how does one make a living podcasting? Well, and you know what I wanted to talk about is why is podcasting such an illegitimate uh, art form? Because it really is. To, Let's to whom? Honest. To me. Okay. Oh, you know what? I, I saw many notes. I just want to say in passing, I saw many notes. It sounds like you did a talk that a lot of people liked. Oh, and nice. you tell me, the gist that I got, people had many quotes from you on the Twitter, which is an online service. And you. it sounds like you were talking about, you pushed back against the idea of doing this because it was it felt too easy. Is that, well, is that fair? This is ultimately the big question, right? I, I, as, I was pre- as I was preparing to go on stage... As, as in all cases, when you go on stage, you, it never turns out the way you, you planned it. Uh, one of the things that I was thinking about quite a bit was that extemporaneous performance comes very naturally to me. For a lot of people, it's, it's, it's very hard, right? They don't want to get, you know, it's like everybody's nightmare, right? You're pushed out on stage with, and you have no, and you're not prepared. They say, they say, I don't know if this has been updated recently, but it's been said as conventional wisdom for a long time that Americans' second greatest fear is death and their first greatest fear is public speaking. Yeah. Add to that, whether or not that's exactly true or accurate, uh, add to that going out and winging it. I going think that, and, that's, the, that's the stuff of nightmares for a lot of right? people. I think it yeah. really is, right? You push out there and, and, it's, and, you're, and the lights come on and it's a big room full of people and you don't know what you're there to do. And watching people at this conference get up and give speeches, it was obvious that a lot of, a lot of the speakers, even though they were, they were professionally very accomplished, everyone was very interested in what they had to say, they were full of anxiety just about the performance of their talk. Like, I have to go out and talk for 20 minutes in front of people. And so they have a PowerPoint, and they, they have their script, and their script is, is um, scrolling at their feet on a television set. And, and, and I was watching from backstage, and a lot of times, you know, the speaker's very naturalistic, but they're, it's word for word, kind of their prepared text. And so part of what I wanted to talk about was, look, I'm walking out here. I have no – I have really – done very little preparation about what I'm going to say. And honestly, if, if, um, if I looked over to the side of the stage after my 20 minutes was done and there was somebody holding a sign that said, can you stretch it for another hour? I'd be like, great. Like this kind of thing. <laughs> it's not like you're, it's not like you're playing at the opening of a mall. <laughs> right. There, there, nobody is, nobody's repelling behind stretch, me. Stretch. Cirque du Soleil isn't, uh, isn't repelling while I'm playing with no monitors at 7 a.m. in front of a mall. No, this is just me talking to you about stuff, and I could do it for hours. But, the, but somehow, the fact that it is everyone's greatest fear and, and for most people very difficult to do doesn't impart any sense of that doing it is um, like a technical skill that should be, rewar- should be rewarded co- commensurate with its difficulty, right? Like if you, if you are a mathematician, everybody recognizes that that's very difficult. They don't know how to do it, and they say this is something that, that you should be either rewarded for with pay or with um, – stature 
if you can run a four-minute mile, you know, you get a medal or everybody applauds. But there's a sense of if you can get up and wing it, that you're getting away with murder somehow. You know, everyone's reaction is sort of like, oh, hmm, um, you didn't try very hard. Or, you know, there, there's, a, there's this feeling, or man, and maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just the one carrying this. But that somehow the person that slaved for weeks over their PowerPoint demonstration in order that they control their anxiety enough to give a kind of stilted performance has done more work and therefore their performance is more valid than the person who can get up and give an, uh, an entertaining talk without notes. And this, was a, this, was, this is something that's always kind of in my... I'm always wrestling with this, right? Because the, the, the most fun I have is doing this podcast. In some ways, it's something I'm very, very proud of, or maybe even the most proud of. But we, you and I just get on here and wing it every week. And so it also feels a little illegitimate. Like, like that, cheating. Yeah, that this be our, that this be something we're rewarded for, that this be a, even considered a job. Mm-hmm. Because it's just like, hey, two guys jacking off, whoa, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a skill set. It's, a, it's just as difficult as, as being a good painter or something. But it seems, it seems like, um, I don't know, some, somehow invalid. Mm. And I wanted to talk about that, but then when I got on stage, I just made like forty minutes of Portland jokes, mm-hmm. and then dropped trowel, flipped the audience off went and then standing O. classic Roderick you know what I mean because that's my brand yeah and that's what people come and that's what they expect that's when, what when I, you look nice today was there we actually mostly at well at, at Adam's request we swore that we wouldn't make poop jokes uh-huh. and at Scott's request we swore that we wouldn't make Portland jokes and then we went out there and I did about 40 minutes of Portland and poop jokes yeah it was all po- Portland and all poop you can't Portland, help yourself yeah all Portland all poop yeah. Um, so I don't know. You know, I I, I, I look thoughts, at other, I got thoughts. Yeah, I look at people that are you know really, 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 really put a lot of effort into doing these things that are sort of um, that are second nature to me. And obviously, like I would have to put a lot of effort into doing uh, some you know uh, work. Right. That's what's really hard for me to do. You're very. Hmm. This uh, came up on the very special uh, Relay.fm members only um, uh, edition of Reconcilable Differences, on which you were kind enough to guest. And it came up at the end where you were saying you wish you were you wish you uh, were more than a jack of all trades. You wish you were really good at something. And our friend John Syracuse took you to task on this, saying you're a professional musician. Like yeah. you you get paid, you get to do stuff, or not get to do stuff. I know <laughs> to avoid that term. Do oh. uh, you get to be in a van, man? <laughs> it's got to be its own reward, man. Yeah. Everybody's trying to steal your copper pipe. But the um, but I think he made an interesting point, which is that uh, here. Okay, um, let me try to sum it up this way i think um so i, I want to talk more about a bunch of details that are wrapped up in what you're saying that have to do with things like how you feel about the audience's feeling about you what are the stakes for it going wrong because i think that greatly changes the equation for for a lot of people but set that aside for a minute i think anything that doesn't feel impossibly difficult to us 
doesn't feel like work. And I think mm-hmm. that's a problem. And I'm, I'm not, I'm talking about anything here. And I, 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 this is a very back to workish kind of point to make, but I think a lot of us are suspicious of things that aren't where we have like, I don't know if it's sunk cost fallacy or something, but where if we put a bunch of effort, time, education, and resources into one part of our life, and that's not the part that is our job, we feel like we're, we're we feel like we're being not just not just that we're getting away with something, but that we're like almost we're being disloyal to the time that we spent in the past. And I, I think that sometimes that's great because it can make you want to stick with it and try harder and uh, you know um, thrive. But at other times, it really works across purposes because it's not just that it's easy, but if it's something that feels good to do, I think people are suspicious of it. And that's a very privileged thing to say because we're really we're really fortunate in a lot of ways to get to do what we're doing. But I think that's true for almost everybody. Mm-hmm. We're like if you you feel like there's this some some part of us, and I'm I'm from the Midwest. Your mom I'm from Ohio. Your mom is from Ohio. Yeah. I think there is a certain kind of I don't know if it's Puritan, but there's a certain kind of Midwestern feeling that if you're happy, you're probably doing something wrong. Yeah, I think it's I think it's Quaker, but but yeah, I agree. Uh, if you're happy, you must be doing something wrong. That's, I mean, that's reductive. And I'm trying to make this about more than just this podcast, but yeah. the, the other thing, just, just, just to, to circle back to that one thing was, um, and we'll get back to Beatles dogs, I hope. But um, in, in that case, think about this though. Um, you're going in front of a bunch of people where, well, let's put it this way. Were you worried? Were you worried that the audience would not be receptive to what you had to say? Were, were you concerned? Were you like losing sleep over like, whether people would be going into this with a negative feeling about you preloaded for bear or conversely, like, were you worried that you had to make a certain case to that particular audience? And did that cause you stress before the talk? I mean, there is a little bit of stress now involved in getting up and giving speeches, uh, just because the, because the atmosphere around mansplaining, particularly middle-aged white men explaining middle mansplaining is so fraught, right? That there's, there are camps in which my presence at an event is already suspect, already problematic. And so, you know, standing up on stage in front of people and being my natural self and saying, hello, everyone, I'm a big Middle-aged white guy. With you things, can suck a bag of dicks. <laughs> with things to say about stuff. <laughs> nice to meet you. I've got ideas about things. There's, there is now, a, you know, like a, an inhibition that, that there will be people in the audience primed to be, um, uh, to be looking for a problem or, or, you know, and there, and, and at the last, at this XOXO, there was a there was a person who, to me, very clearly came already angry and found a way to fit like and tweeted halfway through my presentation about my unexamined privilege. Halfway through a presentation that, you know, she she did not bother to to. I mean, she didn't tweet at the end, right? So maybe by the end she had she had heard things in the second half of the presentation that made her realize that the first half of the presentation was set up. 
and then the you know the message of the second half relieves the tension of the first half. It's a big part of performance. Uh, so halfway through, she's already tweeting about my unexamined privilege, and my feeling is that she came into the conference either having already underlined my name as a person that she was going to, uh, you know, was going to do a a, a critique of on these on this topic, right? I mean, she was, she was already mad that I was there. Uh, and then, uh, oh, and then someone confronted, I think it's the same woman confronted me later in the middle of a, in like got up and came over and yelled at me in the audience because I got up, to, I got up at the end of someone else's presentation, did a little bit of a Kanye, like Taylor, I'm going to let you finish, but I just have an anecdote here that'll, and you know, again, I'm a performer, was it, was it someone you know? No, no, no. No, no, I mean the, the person you were kanye No, uh, but they're a fellow performer, and I'm there as a paid performer, and my job is to perform, and I know what a, I know what a good performance is, right? I'm not, I know I'm not stepping on anybody. It was a, I had an anecdote. It was apropos. It, everybody liked it. But this person, same person, I think, uh, you know, came over and gave me a, uh, in a, in an exaggerated stage whisper, which seemed to be trying to draw attention to herself, gave me a lecture about how I, how rude I had been in, you know, in standing up and making a comment to the room. And she was uh, entirely incorrect. And again, felt like she came into the event loaded for bear, looking for a reason, you know, so there is a certain amount of that when I'm preparing to give a talk at XOXO, for instance, where I'm like, you know, is there going to be something in my, you know, I know there's not going to be anything in my presentation, but is there just something in my main, you know, something in just my, in my person that someone in the audience is going to find, uh, is going to tr- something is going to trigger someone else just in the way that I carry myself in the sure. tone of my voice in my casualness in the fa- in the very fact that I am comfortable standing up in front of a room that alone is evidence of my status as a white male in a patriarchal culture and so my comfort is a priori an offense and reflecting on my comfort in anything other than an apologetic tone for its very existence is an offense. So, but I don't have any question about my ability to extemporaneously entertain an audience or to begin a story, take it through a, through a journey down a set of rapids. And at the end of the story, you know, have it, have performed an arc and and at the end there's some some resolution and it feels like a complete complete work yeah right? it's, a, it's like a play with acts so i know how to do that and i don't I, i'm not up in the middle of the night going i hope that i don't get halfway through and and blank or i hope you know that the that i'm not up there dying you know that stuff it doesn't really worry me i've died a thousand deaths mm-hmm. in front of a crowd. And it's not, it doesn't, I'm not scared of it, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm laying jokes out there and the, and the laughter is tepid and it, and it feels like, boy, I really lost this audience a long time ago. 
I still can get them back. You get them back just by saying, boy, I lost you guys a long time ago. And well, do and a little soft shoe. And conversely, um, pandering to what you perceive to be some part of the audience that, how can I put this? Uh, pandering to, there's no way to inoculate yourself is the way I would put it. Is that, you know, I think sometimes when I'm, when I'm talking to people who are thinking about doing a thing, <clears throat> whatever that thing is, one of the things I feel like I've learned, it's never easy, but you have to just accept that there are always going to be people who just don't like you and they yeah. don't like what, I know this is very, very simple, but this is the kind of thing where I think people need to hear this. I know I need to hear this is that sometimes there are going to be people who just like on your very best day, the best that you're capable of, they still just basically don't like you. It doesn't make them a bad person. It doesn't make them prejudiced. I'm that way about some people. There's just some people like, you know, Guy Fieri, I gotta tell you, like his persona bugs me, but he seems like a genuinely nice guy. But I don't like his persona. I would not seek out his programming. Yeah. And that's why he sometimes gets to be a joke on here. But but all I'm trying to say is that like what you what you can't do is you don't want to cut muscle on the parts of your personality or your performance style that are that are a big part of who you are and what you do. Like sometimes, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of magic tricks and illusions, but I would never want to go to a show where the person on stage decides they're going to do less magic in order to make me happy. Cause yeah. that's not what the show is about. But with that said, and I want to circle back to this later when you're done, but the, this is, this is the, the thing that's different though is, you know, I, I think a big part of your one's confidence going on stage is <clears throat> at the very least, like if this thing goes totally wrong, if it goes terrible, if I feel misunderstood, if I say something dumb in a way I didn't mean to say, like, what are the stakes? And that I think that feeling of stakes is a big part of what makes people very reluctant to do anything in front of other people. And it's also what causes people to not just prepare, but to maybe over-prepare until yeah. they eventually squeeze every bit of personality and the potential for the human soul out of what they're doing. I'm not, I don't mean to criticize that. Like if you're at, at Apple and you are in a group who's, I don't whatever the definition of not a successful group at Apple is, and you have to get up in front of a bunch of people who are used to fantastic presentations about successful products, and you've got to be the one who goes up and your, your PowerPoint deck goes wrong and you have to report bad results, I'd be nervous about that too. It's nice to be in a place where you feel like I can be the person I want to be in front of these people with the level of preparation I think is appropriate and do what I think is best to put on a good show. And you're a performer. That's like, that's what they bring you in for. But the, I think the challenge is, and and you know, and and XOXO is a is a place where the where the the temperature is turned up a little bit on this, which is that at XOXO, me talking to this group of people that are largely my peers, um, the stakes are one thing, but because it's going on the internet, and because it's never a hundred percent clear what the what the of the moment issue is now. It's possible that you could because we see it all the time. Someone gets up and gives what they think is in a, a, a an innocent or innocuous presentation that they are expecting is going to be received one way. Or, or could we also stipulate it's it's something where you maybe even took pains to have it not be something that's broadly offensive. Maybe, and you, maybe you think you're saying something from maybe even a vulnerable point about yourself that, that you don't, you don't, you're absolutely not there to hurt anybody's feelings or to exercise privilege, 
right? I mean, isn't that part of it? Is like, even if you feel like you've prepared for that, you still can't really be prepared for that. You cannot because, I mean, I think you can by doing exactly what you just said, which is just sort of do less magic. But if you are trying to, if you're trying to do something original and unusual and do something in within your character that where you're, you are pushing boundaries, which is a thing that we always, particularly as artists, you need to push boundaries. That is, that is the game. That's how we advance the whole story, the human story, push boundaries. But, but you get into a posture where, where boundaries are thought of as a different thing or, or respecting boundaries is also uh, like a prime directive. And how to push boundaries and respect boundaries at the same time, I mean, every person is trying to do it in a different way. But what you can never know is whether your offhand comment, your awkward attempt to recover from a joke, your, um, you know, your panicked response to a, 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 an ejaculation from the crowd that caught you off guard that you didn't expect, whether that is going to be looped and put into the world and you're going to be the next one that's pilloried. And that's the thing you just can't, all you can do now is trust that all the years that you've spent on the balance beam learning how to do gymnastics is going to save you in that moment. But I see, I see people take the stage and their panic is not just like, what if, you know, what, what if I walk out on stage and I look down and I'm not wearing any clothes? But it's also like, what if I get out there and in the middle of a thing that's going great, I say the wrong thing? Um, either because it's written in my speech and I didn't realize that, it's, that, the, that the word I chose is, is a word that two days ago became incredibly fraught. Or because somebody in the crowd goes, that's not funny. And I reply to them just in the spirit of the moment. And that, you know, and, and that becomes a thing that even if it worked in the room, you know what I mean? Like even if everybody at the place gets it and goes, yeah, that, that it, it changes, it changes the temperature. Well, but, but if, if the one person in the room that, as you described earlier, who just isn't going to like you, no matter what you're their guy Fieri. If that person is is built or came with a plan and is tape recording you and puts it online and either in context or out and says, look at this. I mean, a lot of times you can put somebody's comments completely in context. It's not always a question of, of decontextualizing them. You can put it completely in context. But if you put, if you put a... Uh, like a scroll underneath it that says everything, you know, everything that's being said here is offensive. You can call, you can, you can take the context or you can change the context just by captioning. Oh yeah. By, by hanging a lantern on it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's like if I was watching this video without any background music, I would feel like this was an interesting scene, but all of a sudden there's, there's, background music flown in in the form of critical context or or you know just like here the strings are getting all tense now and all of a sudden these words have uh, all of a sudden these words are now either offensive or have a different meaning so so yeah the stakes the potential stakes have changed mm -hmm. 
for every kind of one of these things. And I'm not worried about it at, at, in my core, you know, because, because there's a very real risk. And, I, you know, I've felt it just between you and me and, and sort of with everybody in our, in our peer group specifically of white middle-aged guys making things that we all recognize that at some point or another, we may be up on the cross. It's, it's part of the, it's just part of the new reality. Hmm. And lots of people have spent a lot of time up on the cross in the past. And it was rarely us though. Not necessarily. I mean, Jesus was a middle-aged white guy. Hmm. He's the first one. He on was middle aged for his time, I think. Yeah. Yeah, right. Because people only live to be sixty. Although I heard that that was that's recently dispelled. Turns out. But you know what I'm saying? Like, I, it's I, a, I, I do. I mean, I, 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 um, boy, have I got mixed, super mixed, uh, not feelings, just thoughts about about a lot of this stuff. I mean, one thing to keep in mind uh, is that I try to keep. I'm not trying to school you, but one thing I try to keep in mind is that we. One thing that makes uh, that potentially makes our American experiment good is that there are people that will always be opposed to each other, and that's okay. I mean, this gets a little bit to the whole, you know, we can all agree on cheese thing, where we feel this need to find something in common when, well, you know, if we're antithetically opposed to this one, to a certain given point, like, we have to accept that that's, that's part of the conversation, and that maybe, maybe neither one of us should say things we don't think are true in order to look like we're being um, collegial. Uh, that's, that's a big part of it. The, and the other part of it is that there's, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for a term I learned in, in this election cycle called OPPO, which is short for opposition research. And it's the kind of dossiers that get compiled on people. It's, you know, along the lines of like somebody following a candidate around with a camera, recording every single thing they say, and then, you know, being able to go in and highlight, you know, sure, certain things. Up, yeah. And I mean, but the thing is, that's, that's, I mean, I guess the thing is, though, like, is that bad? Is that bad that there are people who just don't like us or don't like a given person for for reasons that could be cultural, could be political? I mean, sometimes that means racism, but a lot of time it doesn't. It just means that's just that's just not for me or the way that this person presents is antithetical to the stuff that I believe in. Does that mean that either one of us has to change? Not necessarily. I don't think i mean and i'm not trying to say i'm not trying to say put the kkk up at xoxo that's a lot of letters but but i am trying to say that like that's part of being a grown-up is just realizing that like you should you're this is not seventh grade you guys don't change your personality to please whoever happens to be in the room or you're never going to become an actual person I, i think that the i think that we're in a state and i was thinking about this the other day we used to live in a world in which the media ostensibly tried to be nonpartisan. They tried to be um, uh, fair and balanced. And there's a ton of media critique that, you know, over the years explained to us, like, the media was not fair and balanced. The the media was operating, you know, the, I'm talking about mainstream media in a in a closed system. But we could just, in, in older times, just call it the press. The press, right. Like the, the people who were, for example, not reporting on, you know, Roosevelt's health state. Sure, or Kennedy's... Uh, Addison's disease, yeah. But 
Well, the presumption, I think, of a world kind of close to the one we're living in now where there's a lot more access, uh, the, the, we can see more deeply, you could, not, you could not hide Kennedy's Addison's disease now, right? Because there are, just, there are a lot of people that aren't part of the, the tiny little club anymore that, that see that as newsworthy and, are, and it would be capable of reporting on it. But what I don't think we, I don't think 25 years ago, media prognosticators could have seen, could have foreseen a world in which media now is deeply and universally biased. Like every single media outlet, um, nobody's pretending to be unbiased anymore. It's, it's quite the opposite. Every single Every, everybody's a reporter and everybody is putting a real stamp on it. And I'm, I was thinking, like, is universally biased media in some ways accomplishing a, a, a lack of bias or, or, like, your ability to well, find... If you, if, you take, if you take all the reporting as a whole. Yeah, if you take ra- it all... Rather than trying to, like, insert false equivalency into every single person's coverage, you look at this as many, many different voices that understandably have a point of view. Yeah, and that ultimately, if you're trying a, a, a more nuanced idea of what, is, what actually transpired is, is, is accomplishable, right? You can look at a you can look at all of the reporting across a wide spectrum and, and get maybe even a better picture of what happened than if you're if than if five people are there trying to be unbiased. Isn't that historically what papers in the UK have done? I mean, it hasn't there historically been certain papers even to this day that like the Guardian tends to be more liberal. I mean, there's isn't that kind of how it's worked historically? There, there, it, it, it's like that was more. They were more openly contentious, but they were still major. I mean, they, they, it, it, you needed resources to be able to be heard, and resources always come with strings attached. And now we just don't have that, right? You don't need, you don't need any resources. If you're the one person sitting there with your cell phone when a comet streaks across the sky, you, the, your footage will find a place in the world, right? You, I mean, you, you'll... That will be on the news tomorrow, even if you're the only one that caught it. And that doesn't, you don't, you don't have, you're not a reporter. You're not getting, you're not out there working your beat. You and know that, that's I mean? something, there, there's a distinction there that started, I'm going to guess, in the 1980s, which is if you had a portable video camera, you could be the one who is actually recording the media in res. Like you're right. basically the, the record- Rodney King. King. Right. But, but the thing is, you've always been there. There's always been the opportunity for you to be interviewed as a witness of a thing. But as the witness of a thing, I don't mean to get all semiotic here. You're, you're, you're basically part of the story now, but you're not the one who's actually bringing the evidence of that to the public. Right. Right. It's still, that's still like a point of view. You're the person who says, I saw the accident and this is what happened. Well, I saw the accident and this is what happened. Whereas I think there is that we tend to give more weight to something like, you know, look at the Bigfoot tape, right? I mean, like when you're able to go out and say, you know, I recorded this, that has primacy. And, and that's something that didn't exist as widely before at least the 80s, probably the 90s. Right. But I think the, the, the other side and the thing that we're now in a, um, I don't know whether this is a, a transitional moment or whether it's 
this is this is the thing about transitional moments, right? You don't know whether this is just a, a five-year blip or whether this is the beginning of a new way of thinking. And in most cases, I think it's both, right? It's both a five-year blip and also five years from now, we're going to be on the other side of this and we'll be somewhere different than we would have been. But everybody's a pundit now. Everybody's Everybody thinks that their hot take is also newsworthy. And that's what makes the... That's what makes the moment so pregnant. Like, uh, and, and, and I thought about this relative to this woman coming up to me in the audience and trying to dress me down for a thing. Ultimately, what happened was I did a performance and she didn't like the performance. And in that sense, it's just like you say. You don't have to be liked by everybody. There's always going to be somebody that doesn't like Guy Fieri and they're not going to like that performance. But her sense of her own importance or her sense of her role in that situation was not like, I didn't like that performance, but rather she saw herself as the, I mean, her job in that situation was to school me and shame me and correct the wrong. And she had no agency there. She wasn't a stakeholder. She was just, just an observer. But all of a sudden she adopted, it was now her responsibility to, on behalf of the people on stage, fellow performers, on behalf of them, she needed now to write this injustice. And that's new. And, and it isn't simply like, I, don't, I didn't like that. I'm, I don't like that performer, I didn't like that performance. And in the past, you would go home and you'd write, a, you'd write a, a blog post or you would write an article for the local newspaper that said, this was a performance, I thought it was bad. But to add that other element of, you know, I am a, I am a crusader personally for, and, and both working as a, as a, a, uh, like a media member and also as a what is this other what what is this other job you know the job of um the the like the the sort of puritanical the 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 one picking up the first stone you know almost but i mean here's the, the thing is though part of it is shifting the idea of what we consider a political space. So, you know, the kinds of folks who started, let's say in particular, you could have people who were striking for union issues in previous generations mm -hmm. or in the 60s and 70s, people who were protesting, whether that is segregation or protesting um, nuclear proliferation. But, you know, there are people who took an active role in saying, like, I need to, to paraphrase that guy from Berkeley, you know, throw yourself upon the gears. That it's my job here to go in and disrupt what's happening here because, and, you know, and again, we can all disagree on whether this is appropriate or not, but I'm just saying there was a time when you could say, look, you know, uh, I don't want to have a nuclear reactor in my backyard, so I'm going to chain myself to a fence. Or the kind of folks who would say, like, I'm going to go put a daisy into the, the police officer's rifle, whatever. But it's just that now today it feels like, uh, and I don't have a strong, super strong opinion, but I'm just 
suggesting that now the politics has moved from, you know, Superfund sites to stages. And the people who want to throw themselves upon the gears and the levers are are the are taking a similar role to what people would have done to protest in a different time. Whether I agree with them or not, they feel so strongly about this that they can't allow this to go on uninterrupted. Yeah, is I mean, I guess what I'm there's not really a question there. Do you see any analog between what people were doing in previous generations? to whether that's the Luddites, you know, uh, attacking mechanical devices, or whether that's people saying, you know, I'm going to sit at this lunch counter. Do you see it? Do you, don't you see that as part of some extension of a protest to say, I'm just doing it in a different place now? I, well, I mean, I, I see exactly the point you're making. And I wonder, and I think it's, I think it's related to the fact that right now, um, it's very clear to members of our community, um, the, the left, right, that we're living in a world in which um, blacks and Hispanics and women and transgender people are being oppressed by a, 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 a white patriarchal uh, like uber culture. And when you listen to the Trump supporters, they are equally convinced that white Christian America is being violently oppressed by the like mochaccino coalition of liberal, intellectual, media, Hollywood. Well, yeah, and that's that, that's to tease out. It's 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 they see that as systematic oppression. Yeah, but that we are that that the left is the is the majority is the is the mega culture, and that there that that white Christian America is is increasingly like being violently suppressed, and when you start to listen to everyone's story now in the US, you realize that every single person, every single political group, every every entity has a narrative in which they are being uh, victimized and oppressed by a majority. At, and, and it leaves me with the feeling that not every single person is not every group of people in America can be simultaneously oppressed by a, a by a majority, but that is the that is the current. It's not a, it's not just a vocabulary, and it's not an expedient political system. It's a it's a heartfelt belief, and from our side, it's very clear it, it, in the minutia, right? In each individual case of police brutality or of uh, uh, all the injustices, uh, rape culture, et cetera. Each one of those things in its specificity, it's very clear who the oppressor is and what our job as the oppressed or representatives of the oppressed or allies of the oppressed, like where, where our work should be. Where to, where to focus our efforts. Right. But you listen to the, the other side of the aisle and in the specificity of their oppression, there's just exactly the same conviction that in this instance and in that instance and in that instance, 
the oppression is so clear and so dramatic and so threatening. And they are also stringing together a, a narrative extremely compelling to themselves that, those, that the specificity of those things spells a, you know, a, a, a widespread culture of intolerance that's coming from the other side of the aisle. And so, although I absolutely see like the analogy you're making to the anti-war movement or the civil rights movement where people are, are uh, seeing injustice and are trying to chain themselves to, to the gates of the weapons plant, that is their perception. I think that is absolutely people's perception of, their, of the work that they're doing. But it's happening, it's more and more granular all the time until you meet people who you who are also i mean like again not to not to just keep dumping on this this one individual but she was a white woman at a at a conference you had to apply to attend that cost a lot of money to attend but she was perceiving herself not only as a victim but also as a defender of other people that she was imposing victimhood on you get the sense that this was happening. I mean, this, the, the way you're describing this, it kind of sounds like it's a blanket party on John. Do you get the feeling this person was there to do do other things of this sort with different ideas and causes, or do you think she just was specifically wanting to take you out? Uh, I, I mean, uh, who knows? Hmm. I'm, it's not like I went and read her Twitter feed, but her her comments to me in both instances were. Um, you know, like presupposed a, a truth that didn't exist. Like she was judging me based on my appearance and presumed from my appearance and my position at the festival that I was all these things that she was against. Huh. And she came into the festival already against those things and found a way that found a way to, uh, to fit my behavior, however little it resembled what she thought it was, you know, into, into that matrix. But I see it in trying to make sense and trying to parse our, our, our current political situation. Like I hear that same, um, kind of like confident indignation from people that I disagree with Totally, and I'm talking about people that think that the that the white race is under attack, but the tone and the and the victimhood is like note for note coming from the same emotional place, and that's why I feel like this is a this is a transitional moment, right? We cannot continue along a path where we each individually become more and more convinced that we are being assailed. By you know, by every other group of stakeholders, you know, it, we it, it's not sustainable. It's a it's a moment, and eventually, people are going to have to start. And this is part of, I think, acknowledging your privilege, which is that each individual group is going to have to start acknowledging their own power and acknowledging it in its appropriate context, and saying, mm-hmm. you know, like, I am not a victim. I am empowered. There are challenges 
I still feel disenfranchised. But that, disenfran- that, but that disenfranchisement I feel in this area is not like a is not a massive conspiracy to disenfranchise me. It is simply that I'm encountering people that disagree or that, you know, that my power is truncated in this way and in that or was historically. But actually, I do have a lot of power now. I am a, you know, I'm a middle-class university student or I am a, you know, I'm a successful business person or I am, I'm just a blogger, but my voice is heard in a way that, that in the past no one of my stature could have been heard. And, and, and that, that's the next level of examining privilege. Well, yeah. And that, <laughs> or acknowledging it. It's not just examining it. It's like, it's like, well, no, the, I mean, the acknowledging part is huge, but I mean, that's, and I think it's actually super instructive. It's been really, it's been a good tonic for me as, as much as I push back initially. Um, uh, it's been a good tonic for me as a human being, but I want, I want to just say one thing here. Um, from a, admittedly, admittedly from a remove, because I'm not super involved in this conversation, but I think it's been, uh, it's been very interesting to, uh, from a remove, watch the evolution and discussion about feminism, uh, which started out uh, for a long time. It was mostly uh, white women and their allies. And over time, there was a different strain that developed mm-hmm. of, of black people, black feminism. And a very, very different strain of Latina feminism and a real different approach for that. And like, do you want to be, how, is this inclusive? Is this the angle? You know, that's just the whole idea that, that feminism is not some spray on approach to equality, but it's actually a fundamentally different way of thinking about the world. An idea that I think is, people are still getting their head around. I, I remember in the, the gender studies class I had in college, first being presented with that idea, um, at, at, you know, the age of about 20, I mean, pretty blown away. Cause I always thought, oh, blah, ERA, that's just, that's so silly. Like, you know, why do we need to do this? And just that idea that, that, I mean, and, uh, I just, I, I, I'm very intrigued by that idea that even white women in that instance are going to have to look at a lot of unexamined, uh, precepts about what they believe and historically have existed a certain way in order, not simply to, accommodate other people, <laughs> but to truly understand that for me to really understand the nature of this thing where mostly my kind of voice have, has had primacy, it's really important for me to open up my idea of, of what this thing is. And that means sitting and listening to other people who historically I've been out there saying, I want to, I want to defend and I want to support whose position I assume I'm taking care of. And then they come up and a lot of, you know, black ladies come up and go, you know what, actually, we would do this a real different way. Latina ladies come up and say, you know what? We would do this a real different way. That's, I, I, that's something where every time I hear about that, I'm really intrigued. And it's not in a snarky way at all. It's no. another way of saying, like, you know, when we talk about, if there's anything, any part of this, well, the most important part of it is that white guys learn to suck it up and realize that we're not the king of everything. Let's, uh, that, I really feel that way. But I think a second part of it is what you're describing. That's, we're the guys who need to learn this more than anybody else. But it doesn't stop there by any stretch. And I think if there's anything that's a little bit damaging and destructive, it's to sit on a perch and feel like we finally understood how a situation works. It's the softness and openness to understanding how other people have a point of view about these things that, that helps these ideas become something more than just this, this strident political position. It becomes a way of, as you say, a thought technology. It's a way of understanding the world in a way that is really illuminating. 
yeah. uh, and can actually can be can be a wonderful thing. So I'm not trying to pass off the whole like, well, you got privilege too. I got the most, boy. Believe me, I, I I'm getting that. But it is it is intriguing to watch, and you know, and then to see how that will evolve. Where is it? You know, it's we think about that idea of punching up and punching down, and you know, at what point is interrupting that show um, not punching up? You know what I mean? I well, mean, absolutely. And to, I think, I think to, to your point, like there is still a tremendous energy within white feminists that fails to, I mean, that's very defensive when confronted by feminists of color, right? Like that, like, like that is that kind of the tension within feminism is fascinating to watch. But like the, the approach right in this cultural moment of acknowledging privilege and being, um, and in a way being ashamed of that, that first moment of like, Oh my God, I didn't know how much privilege I had. And I'm ashamed that I was operating in the world thinking that I was thinking that I had the same challenges that everybody else did. When in fact I had quite a few advantages that it just never occurred to me. I had, um, and that, that idea of it, of saying, wow, I have a lot of advantages that I wasn't aware of. And that, and taking away the, the element of, of um, really of shame about it, but also of saying like that, I mean, each individual person has advantages, even out of a cultural context, that, that, we weren't taught to think that way, any of us really, to wake up in the morning and count our advantages and, and acknowledge like gracefully and with humility that not everybody has those advantages. And those aren't limited to advantages of gender or race. And that is a very, I think, uh, it's on the path to a very much more spiritual culture. And right now we're in a, in this moment where a lot of our intellectual capital is being kind of expended, both sort of pillaring other people for privilege that they aren't acknowledging and ourselves for privilege that in a lot of cases we've having been made aware of it, we're now trying to redress at all times, right? Or, or to the best of our ability, but you can't, you can't cede power, right? In, in a way, you have to, you have to take power, um, and that's Machiavelli. But it isn't untrue, right? Power that's given to you by somebody else is power that they still hold, and if if it's being granted to you, it doesn't belong to you. Power is something that you seize, and and hold, and that's both individually and cult and you know in cultures but the next step for us all i think is to say you know what i mean it's we look over at the white christians and say you guys are you guys have all the advantages right you're the you're ostensibly the majority and all these oil workers down in louisiana who are living on food stamps are like what the fuck are you talking about we feel assailed at every at every level and part of our part of our acknowledgement of our privilege is also to sort of like acknowledge their lack of it and and that isn't confined 
right? I mean, every day now I wake up and not only reflect on my own privilege, but reflect on the, the many, many ways that every person, even, even the richest guy in Seattle, wakes up and feels under assault somehow. Like nobody had a, nobody had a good day yesterday mm-hmm. in a way, right? And we've talked about that quite a bit. The, the fact that Bill Gates's day yesterday was probably pretty hard. And part of being human, part of being a successful human is to accept that and, and have sympathy for him. To have sympathy for everybody that you encounter. And that's why you don't say shitty things to people on the internet. It's why you don't, it's why you're not a gamer gator. But it's also important to not wake up in a in like a a feeling of of like hyper righteous liberal superiority because everybody's having a bad time. But you know, there's there's another part of this that's I that's really complicated. I wish I could talk about this at a time other than when we've just talked about a lot of political and cultural things. But there's another part of this which is that there there is. Um, Regardless of the side that you're on, I do feel like there's a very strong culture of telling people what they're doing wrong these days. <laughs> this or, has been your favorite topic for so long. It is. Or yeah, as I like to say, know. you know, <laughs> the, the, the internet is constantly telling you that you're enjoying life wrong. But yeah. here's the problem. So you're doing no, the internet wrong. Yeah, but like it's, and this, I'm trying to make a slight bridge to the personal, which is an impossible bridge to make because the personal has become very political. Yeah. So in, in a, if, if we could just play along with me for a minute that we have developed into a more gotcha culture of trying to find what somebody's doing wrong. The one downside of that is that the stakes for changing have become a lot higher and there is less and less incentive to, uh, want to fix something about yourself if it makes it look like you're a flip-flopper or you're being disloyal or you're mm-hmm. capitulating. And and so while I understand the need for stridency in lots of things, on a personal basis, the part that I struggle with is, and I, you know, I'm not trying to tell anybody to do it differently. I'm just, I'm just, this is just a personal feeling is that it is, it is difficult when you do feel like you're doing what you can in whatever way. And it's, it's understandably not always going to be, uh, and it's never going to be enough for some folks. But I guess the thing that I'd love to see it evolve toward is where a conversation about something like privilege goes from being the opportunity where you admit that you're wrong about everything to a chance for personal growth. And that chance for personal growth requires that you allow yourself to become kind of vulnerable, even publicly vulnerable. And I think the risk, to go circle straight back to talking in front of a crowd, I think the risk of being publicly vulnerable is really tough for a lot of people on every side of every aisle. Mm -hmm. And the more um, the more uh, pitched these things become and the higher the stakes, it f- feels like you are giving a part of yourself away personally by admitting there's anything that you could do better. And I, I know that that is a second or third stage for, for a lot of kinds of change and growth to get to that point, that there has to be this certain kind of, you know, nearly violent political confrontation to make things happen. But like, I'm looking forward to the point where it'll be okay to admit that you have feelings one way or another. Yeah. Have a conversation about that and have that not go straight to the political. Have that not go straight to the like, here's the highlight reel of how this person is a, is a garbage person because they changed their mind about something on either or any side. And, as, you know, as long as it's this difficult to talk about something and have it be an idea that you try on like a suit, as you like to say, 
as long as that has such potential giant stakes to it, it's hard for anybody to talk honestly and for anybody on any side to go, you know what? I got that part wrong. Even if you're the person who is trying to castigate somebody on the other side who's doing it wrong, you know, if you were wrong about them doing it wrong, are you going to admit that you were doing that? No, because you're just as invested in that as the other person has now doubled down on their investment in that thing. And that doesn't get us anywhere because that's, then that's why this election year is partly why it's so disgusting and hard to watch it's My, it's we're all just dug in further and further and further and nobody's allowed to be a little bit broken for a while in the service of becoming fixed the the reason i feel that this is a that this is a a momentary space is that in a lot of things like this i always sort of ask what's the, what's your end game like in calling attention to people's privilege what is the end game and i'm talking about you know looking out into the future it can operate within a space where if you examine the end game it is to create a world in which there is no privilege like no advantage no group of people has an advantage over any other group of people like that is one potential look at calling out privilege because if we call it out, we can redress the, the systemic institutional ways in which certain groups of people are privileged over others. But of course, you get into uh, you get immediately into a, a situation where what is in what way does sort of like talent factor into that, right? Like obviously there are privileges that we're, we're right now at a place where we're addressing massive uh, privileges of massive scale and of and of great historical portent H- historical portent that uh, have created like m- a massive scale of privilege but it's very easy within that overarching like rubric to you know, on a personal level be attacking people for like privileges that are that are much more personal you know like um for instance, my ability to get up on stage and extemporize, you can critique that as purely the result of the fact that I'm a white male. But from, from my world of feelings, it feels like that ability is a talent, like being able to run a four-minute mile. I'm gifted with it. And it isn't... Like uh, anybody that's raised a child recognizes that you can do a lot. You can do a lot of work to try to correct what you perceive to be the cultural, te- uh, you know, tentacles that are part of a child's upbringing. But you also see that a child at six months old already is exhibiting personality and talent and 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 predilection that n- no one had anything to do with. Right? It wasn't cultural. It was just innate in them, a priori. And my ability to stand up and, and confidently uh, take charge of a room was a thing that was in me when I was six months old, right? But, it's, but I'm vulnerable to being critiqued as purely a product of, the so, of a social construct. And for me, when I think about the conversation about privilege... I think of a potential end game being that 
through uh, the different groups of people, through the different uh, the different actors, both like macro actors and micro actors, we're able to say, here are our talents. Here are the things that my group is good at. Here are the here are the privileges that we are capable of bringing to bear to collectively solve problems better. Like if there is a group of people that is, you know, that because of cultural or economic or, uh, or innate, like both skills, talents, and also culturally just like, yes, I'm, I was raised with a silver spoon in my mouth and therefore I have this agency in the world. I have this ability that ultimately the goal is to, to learn together to not be greedy and to enact that privilege on behalf of others or to, you know, like the goal can, if we start to think that the goal is to level all privilege, then that's a political movement that we also need to call out. You know, that's not, that isn't benign necessarily, or that is call in uh, Diana moon glampers. <laughs> The handicapper general, <laughs> right? We haven't I talked mean, about Harrison Berger on this entire time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have an email here I want to read. Oh dear, I got to uh, put an ad in here somewhere. Uh, for, for <laughs> 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 this episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by BrainTree, code for easy online payments. You can learn more about BrainTree right now by visiting braintreepayments.com/supertrain. Are you looking to set up payments for your business? Well, Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, get this, Braintree will give you the first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. So maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub. Then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped those folks become what they are today? Braintree makes mobile payments so fast, easy, and seamless, it is literally almost magical. You add it to your app with just a few lines of code, really, honestly, just a few lines of code, and you're instantly ready to accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, PayPal, Venmo, credit cards, even Bitcoin. Bitcoin, people, that's space dollars. And if some other way to pay comes along, Braintree will support that too. That's just how it works. Braintree's fast payouts and continuous support mean you'll always be ready. Whether you're earning your first dollar or your billionth, you're going to see fewer abandoned carts and more sales with Braintree's best-in-class mobile checkout experience. you got to see this for yourself. To check it out and get your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, you just go to braintreepayments.com slash supertrain. Our thanks to Braintree for taking the pain out of online payments and for supporting Roderick on the Line. Podcast <coughs> professional. Podcasting. Let me read this email. <clears throat> John's going to read an email. <clears throat> I'm gonna I'm gonna redact some of the. This is completely off the topic of what we've been talking about. Thank you. This is something completely else. <laughs> I'm gonna redact some of the some of the names. <laughs> this is an invitation uh, that has been tendered to me. Okay. By a firm, which I think is. It's one of those firms that maybe calls itself a design firm, but feels like an advertising firm. <gasps> Are they going to put you on the board? Do you know? Do you know what? No, they're. If, they, if this was a letter about putting me on the board, I would have led with this. Mm. I wouldn't have buried this lead. 
this is a I don't know what design firms do, frankly, mm-hmm. and how it is differentiated from advertising. But here's the <laughs> Are you kidding me? Here, here's Are the, you being serious? Here's the letter. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, they're inviting me to a design gathering. It is, now I'm reading the letter, it is, comma, a few days to get away to somewhere else and be more and different. This is addressed to me personally. This isn't boilerplate. No. Um, here's a link to a video that gives you a little taste, but promise no trust circles. Mm. But there is a talent show, or maybe called a no talent show more aptly, where everyone gets up on stage and does stuff where others feel embarrassed for them. Otherwise, we tackle a problem social, community, creative, mm-hmm. where we use our creative brains in a different way. Uh, we want to invite you up to this resort where you can see the stars and hear nothing. Hmm. We have a musical performer join us to tell us their story, their passion. Look at it as storytelling accompanied by songs. Please bring your family and hang out with us. Observe, participate, or just explore the area. One night you're invited. And so I wrote back and said, hey, uh, can you clarify? Sounds like you want me to perform. Is this a paying gig? <laughs> or is this because it, it's weird? Because it's almost like the way you just before we. I want to know this, but before we get to that, it sounds more like this is someone you know very well that's essentially inviting you uh, to like their summer house for a nice right. conversation. No, this is a person whose title is chief creative officer, right? And I've never heard of this person. But you get what I mean. The tone, oh, yeah. the tone of that was, hey, here's something you're going to find empirically interesting. You're going to get to hear a bunch of people talk. And then the talent show. Yeah. Just and talking. You're, and you're welcome to bring your family. It'll be a great getaway for you. That's guys. a nice offer. And I said, uh, is this a paying gig or is this an experience? Thanks for thinking of me. Exclamation point. John. Hmm. Uh, and the reply is, it's kind of all of the above. Hmm. Um, no, it's not. Acoustic storytelling, small stipend with a family getaway. Oh, I see. You're so lucky. Right. You get to go out and play your music. Yeah. And so I wrote back and said, well, it does sound very much like I am being asked to perform a show because I'm not just a guitar strummer i'm also a storyteller so to say like play a few songs tell some stories like the one thing doesn't mitigate the other right like the storytelling isn't something that casualifies the guitar player it's all about the framing the way they're framing it is they're trying to frame this in a very specific way yeah come on out they're trying to thing. frame it as you are very fortunate to be invited to this particular teddy bear picnic. Mm-hmm. And you know what? On top of it all, dude, 
it's gonna it's an experience and you can bring your family oh and by the way we're gonna give you money too can you believe it a little bit you know some gas money to get up there bring your family mm-hmm. because you know that's how generous we are yeah that's, now I, yeah. I went i went online and i looked at this firm they have like 40 plus employees and uh this is a big resort somewhere up in the mountains that they're taking over for this event and you know when you just look at the people on the thing everybody's kind of a chief something officer mm-hmm. there's like 40 people and they all have you know chief development somebody but they it just really gets the you get the impression that the that the lowest paid person at this place work makes $85,000 a year yeah and it goes up from there right the chief creative officer whoever this guy is obviously is making uh $250,000 a year and i haven't heard back what the small stipend is I'm guessing two hundred and fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. Right? Isn't that in about the small stipend area? I'd say the small stipend is definitely under a thousand dollars. Yeah. Oh, I think a lot, a lot under. Yeah. Uh, and so, would you rather I, have a stipend or an honorarium? You think? I think I'd rather have an honorarium. Honorarium sounds a lot. That's a very lieutenant colonel kind of thing to get. Yeah, a stipend is like <laughs> this will let you get some bottled water. There are some vending machines. Um, here's a little stipend. It's like a, it's like a per diem. Mm-hmm. But so I ran this email by all the other podcasters at the festival who are all people that get asked to give this kind of speech or this kind of thing mm-hmm. where it's like, hey, come on out yeah. to our event. Um, you'll have an uncomfortable bed in a weird room. Uh, <laughs> so will your family. <laughs> you'll be basically on stage the entire time. Because everybody else at this event works together and they're all bored of each other. And we're inviting you because you're, you know, like, because everybody knows you and you were top of the list of people to invite. And so from the moment you wake up in the morning, you're going to be performing. And then you're going to put on a show for us. And, uh, and it's going to be great. And then we're all going to sit around. I know you don't drink. So... You know, there'll be some Martinelli's apple juice there for you mm-hmm. while we all get drunk around the campfire. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. And you perform campfire songs for us. Yeah. And then you play the, and then you just bring it out because, of course, you want to bring it, the guitar out with you. Yeah. And if you say no, everybody's going to go, oh. So you're, you know, absolutely going to bring the guitar out there. And then hopefully someone else will also play the guitar and will get drunk enough that you can hand them the guitar and like Can, can I voir you a little bit here? Of course. Where is it? If I could ask? Just somewhere just in what state? In Washington state, up in the mountains somewhere. Is it like an hour or less away? Mm, let's call it an hour and a half. Okay, so 2 hours. Good part there, there's not extensive travel involved. Right. right. Um well that that hmm I don't so, know. When people ask me things like that, at the, I, I've weaned myself off this, but I will be candid with you, John. There was a time where when somebody asked me something like that, I would say to them, would you do this for the same amount of money? <laughs> and if they said, yes, I absolutely would. I said, well, that's even worse. Because yeah. you really don't value your time. You must not realize how much money you should be making at what you're doing if you would do that. So uh, now you're a dingling and you're a little dishonest. Yeah, you're dishonest. Would you go and do your job here? Well, and you know, maybe that's a thing. For a while, there was the whole, like, I am co- go to a conference guy thing. Like, I just go and I give talks about doop 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 
But man, that still, that still gets my dander up. Why don't we have a conversation like adults about this? If you want to hire me, like, why don't we have that discussion? But yeah. the fact that you keep bringing it back to you can't fire spaghetti party we're going to have, forget it. Yeah. So, well, and so, I asked, so, what was, I asked, so what was the response of the others? I asked the podcasters. Everybody rolled their eyes because everybody gets, I mean, we've all, this is not a new conversation, right? Mm -hmm. We talk about this all the time. All the hilarious letters we get asking us to perform for free. And, uh, and often at a thing like this where it's a, you know, this is a design firm that is, they're going to pay $25,000 for uh, food and sundries at right. this event, right? Is it, inter is it an internal event? I think it is. Yeah, I think it's. I left it off. That's the other part to ask: is how much are, you know? Are you charging anything for people to come to this? No, I think it's. I think it's just a, a, a getaway for staff. It's a chance it's a, for design people to go and, and walk with wolves. Yeah, and just mm -hmm. you know, and that's the thing. We're just going to talk. We're going to yeah, share creative just stuff. Fucking hang out and shit, man. And the and real and the chill, real chill. The presumption that I'm going to get as much out of talking to these people uh, i'm gonna get as much out of spitballing with them about creative stuff as they're gonna get out of spitballing that stuff with me right mm -hmm. i mean I, I went to a i went to an advertising agency at one point not very long ago that was owned by some some friends and they said hey what if we just gave you a desk here <laughs> and i said and this was a big firm you know and i said an odd thing to say i said how do you mean and they were like We'll just give you like a desk up here at the executive level, uh, on which is a separate floor. And <laughs> your ideas can hang out and do whatever. <laughs> yeah, and you can come and just use the space and just be around and hang out. And I was like, and I mean, what goes along with the desk? Are, are you offering me like a job? Well, no. I mean, it's more like just here's some, we have extra space. You come. And I was like, I come and we sit around with our wheelie chairs wheeling around throwing pencils at the ceiling and then that turns into a big ad campaign for you guys and i'm and i lucked out in having a desk it's not so different than your you know light critique of the privilege thing so if yeah. this goes really well if you just give me a desk or whatever yeah we'll know that that has turned out great in a year because what happened yeah well, and the thing is, every time I went by there, they would walk me through their latest campaigns and be like, what do you think of that? And I would say, well, that word right there is a little corny. Or did you ever consider uh, this or that? And they'd be like, nice. So, yeah, there's a reason they want me there to give, the, uh, to give me a free desk. But because we're all creatives, it just seems like let's just get in a creative space and just create a Rama. Yeah, man. And so that's the, you know, like I'm going to go up to this mountain event and we're going to just brainstorm with each other about some creative shit. Yeah, you know what man. would help me well, is that I sat with, the, with my guitar in a room and wrote some songs. Like that's what I need. Yeah, man. But part of the whole point of this, man, is getting away from the money jive. Yeah, that's the money jive. part of the point, man. We got to get off campus. Just let it fucking, just yeah. freak out a little, man. Just freak out. So yeah. David, Reese, David Reese said, I would ask for $10,000 and settle for seventy five hundred. Did he sing it? He didn't know. I love what he sings. <laughs> I would ask for $10,000, beep, boop, boop. And I was like, you know, the $10,000 the, the $10, is definitely the, that's the line where you are saying, go fuck yourself. <laughs> unless you come back and say, oh, you have now made us realize 
what this actually is. You're the asshole. You got invited to Thanksgiving dinner and you want to give him a fucking invoice. Yeah. What a right. dick. That's right. I, I was allowed to bring my family. Oh, my God. They, they, they even said you could bring your family. Yeah. We could all stay in one, in one room with it's two basically, twin beds. It's basically a free vacation, John. It's a free vacation. That's oh, exactly what it is. My goodness. And I think, and I think what you know, I mean, in my, I would never write this in an email to them, but Mm-mm. you know, but what I would, what I would say if, if one of them were listening to the podcast, <laughs> is big fan. Um, big fan. <laughs> I like to choose my own vacations. Yeah, it's funny how that works. Yeah, I can. I'm perfectly capable of of finding a way to vacation with my family. I don't need that opportunity, um, in lieu of money. But it's it's strange when you get it, and it and this came through. This didn't come directly from the chief creative officer. He knows a friend of mine who's in the in the show business, and sent it to her, and she sent it to me with her own little like. This sounds like a. I don't know if this is up your alley, but this sounds like a fun opportunity. Or something. Right. And so I'm not replying to him. I'm replying to her. And so I have now the potential to alienate not just the guy, but my friend, because he sent it to her like, "Hey, can you use oh, your God? Can you use your magic to get John uh, Roderick?" It's not a public library, you know. The thing is, shame on them. If you're, you know, if you're a public library, if you're a Macintosh user group, like if you're St. Jude's, you know, you could write to John Roderick and say, "Hey, look." Would you want to come here and play some music? We don't have any money, but we'd love for you to come. Yeah. Or you could say, you know, basically we pay for your flight. That's the, I don't mind that. I don't mind getting that from somebody that admits that this is what this is. This is this. What I don't like is being made to feel like a turd because you're trying to do a business negotiation as, as though you're my brother-in-law. That's yeah. such fucking weak sauce. Well, and that's the creative. And through, through somebody else, they've got an interlocutor here who's now, now she's putting her up on the line. Well, and, and if I write back and go, huh, this sounds like a gig, at, you know, like she, then, then that's in our relationship Yep. that now she's like, um, well, okay, I guess, sorry, sorry, I gave you this, sorry, I forwarded this to you. And it's like, whoa, 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 I'm not mad at you. I'm just like, like you and I should be on the same page here. Like uh, you, I hate being, I hate being put in that position. I yeah. really, I, I've come to resent the whole like, can you contact this person for me? No, no offense, but that whole idea of like, will you basically vouch for me, a near stranger, to like take the the two times a year you you communicate with this person who's kind of famous? Will you use one of those two times to basically vouch for me, even though you hardly know me at all? Well, of course I would. I'm not an animal. Yeah, so gross. Well, so anyway, uh, I, now, so what now are you just, do? well, just sitting here talking, I, you know, I, uh, right now there's an email pending. Okay. Right? I sent, I sent an email saying, yeah, the more I read this, the more it sounds like they want me to perform, mm. which is a thing, which is what I do professionally. Yeah. 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 Um, the storytelling is actually also my job. That's not a, that's Pro- not professional. A f- it's not friend sessional. Yeah. That's not a fun thing that I'm going to just like, Hey, here's an idea that we had. Have you ever considered telling stories in between your songs? We think you'd be great at that, man. It'd wow. be a perfect fit. You should Amazing. come in. You can bring your family. I have thought of that. Hmm. So I sent that back to her. Now, I, she has not replied. And maybe her lack of reply is, you know, is an email she sent back to him saying, mm, actually, this doesn't sound, seem like it's going to work. Or maybe she's sitting in her office like, I'm too busy to deal with this shit. How did I get stuck in between this? But some of that is rubbing off on me, right? She's now got a... She's she's got a feeling like 
I'm too busy to deal with this. Roderick should have just said yes, or he should have just said, let me deal with this. But he replied to me instead of to them because I sent it to him instead of giving his email to them. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, there's I an do. Email I do. It's, it's, it's awkwardness all the way down. And if she doesn't reply, yeah. problem solved. If she replies and says, this isn't, I mean, I should have, I should get out of this or, you know, if you don't want to do it, reply to them. I'm going to be like, hmm, I don't, they never emailed me. So, but you know, if is and right, if they, and if they do, I'm going to say, I would love to do this. 10 grand seems fair. <laughs> Beep, boop, boop, boop. And then we'll see what they say. Mm-hmm. Oh, we were thinking $250. Oh, well, you yeah, don't value, well, you you don't say, value me very highly. Hey, let me, uh, let me rewrite this email for you. Uh, <laughs> we want you to stop everything that you're doing in your life to go be on a place on the planet for the amount of time that we declare, and we have almost no budget. Is that something you'd be super into? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is important. This is the thing that we're doing because we're going to deduct the whole thing because it's professional development. for And, and our staff... Like this does qualify as a perk for them because they work 60-hour weeks and we're taking them up to a hotel for free. That's nice. So it seems probably within, within our company washroom like a real good deal. You ever thought about being a storyteller? Me? Mm-hmm. Mm. Give it some thought. I'm not sure I'd be good at it. Huh. What are you doing this weekend? Uh, you know, it's funny. My weekends are... C- Kind of full up. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Looking forward. You can bring a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> holy, holy shit. I can bring my guitar? Oh my God. And my family? What? Oh my God.